Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about some of the factors that kicked off the Viking era, as well as some of their less well-known expeditions to the east. But what about Scandinavia, or raids on the British Isles, or the settlement of Iceland? In this episode, we'll cover that more familiar territory. Let's begin. We're here on HI101 with Paul McGowan. Howdy. How's it going? Good. I'm learning so much and being confused. So much. Oh, man. Let's see if we can sort that out. Yeah. Um, well, I think I have it. It's just... There's something very tenuous about the like the Viking experience overall. Yeah. It's it's hard to kind of put a pin in it. Yeah. It's 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 a little bit ethereal because it's almost more a, more a process than it is a... Well, I think a, it's like it's it's a really interesting story mm-hmm. or it's, it's many interesting stories and it's kind of funny that they've been typecast in the way that they have been because like the other side of it to me is i mean maybe not as as gory but it's just as interesting oh it's and yeah and it's and it's still plenty gory i I mean yeah you know we should we should make sure to always mention that part very very gory but also so is everywhere in europe at this point in time yeah i mean it was a pretty violent time just overall right but i mean like but you're saying they would go to a place and and try to establish trade whereas like I think the conventional image of Vikings is they would go in, swords out, and start cutting heads off. Yeah, they're not Mongols. No. You know? And that's that's a story for another time. But yeah, there's there's a little bit more to it than that. This this is a not maybe the best parallel to to make, but these are displaced peoples. You know, they're 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 being forced out of their home for whatever reason. Yeah. And they happen to have a cultural sort of template of of how to deal with being or of finding yourself in that situation namely trade then raid if you can at least or if it's if it's a, a low risk enough opportunity right i didn't even really kind of key in on that before so they would trade with a town and then go and basically take back everything that they had just traded no not not quite it's not it's specifically more like, in that okay so i'm a viking yeah I've got a lot of honey because that's what we do really well. Okay. We're, we're really good at making honey. We've got the whole beekeeping thing just like down to a fine art. Interesting. And you live on a little island off the coast of Scotland. And you guys have, th- there's a lot of trees growing on that, on yeah. this island. Really good lumber. Okay. The best. We, we've got the best lumber. The best lumber. You're going to make some really good trade deals. Yeah. Great trade deals. And... I'm going to come and I'm going to say, listen, 
where I'm from in Norway, we've got, you know, it's a rocky coastline. You know, there's, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of pine that you can kind of find here and there, but it's not always the best ship making uh, wood. Whereas you guys, these oak trees are outstanding. Right. I want to give you like, I've got, I've got all this honey. How much timber will you give me for this? And we make a deal and it's all good. And I take my timber back home with me and you get your honey and everyone's life is better for it. But I did happen to notice that just outside of town, there's this monastery where the the thing about monasteries is people would donate really high value things to it because it's a monastery. So it's safe there. Yeah. You know, when, when someone's making a donation to the church, they might donate a, a, a gold cross or an incredibly ornate Bible or something like that, which is like really high. It's, it's worth a lot of money. And it's not such a bad thing because it's in a monastery. Who's going to raid a monastery? But I noticed that there's a monastery there. It doesn't look like anyone else has hit it yet. So it's probably full of good stuff in there. Also, you know what? I didn't get that much timber for this deal. I was really hoping to get like double what I got. And I saw how much they have curing out back. It's pretty good. There were at least 30 cows wandering around. And most of the men seem to be older than fighting age. And the few that were looked maybe a little sickly and there's no one else really around. Why don't I just take the rest of the lumber and whatever's in that monastery and sell some slaves while I'm at it. Right. What I'm not going to do is land on shore ax drawn and say, all right, what's here for me to take. Right. I'm going to come back and hit a place. I'm a, I'm a cat burglar. I'm not, you know, doing a smash and grab on a convenience store. Yeah. Very loud cat burglar. Right. So they were giving diplomacy the po- like a very half-hearted try. The, the point is the target, not the, not the method. Right. That was a, that was a mixed metaphor at best. But yeah, <laughs> it's 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 about knowing what you're what you're going for, and and I mean, if they find a place that you know is similarly really rich in resources, but they realize you know what, I don't really have a chance of taking this place with my warband. You know, they'll likely look elsewhere, but they might decide that they like it enough that they'll try and integrate through trade or through more diplomatic means. So they were like casing the place. Yes, exactly. Like those like those guys who pretend to be checking out your furnace. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. exactly. All right. Yeah, this is a police calling. We're uh we're just uh checking when everyone <laughs> in the neighborhood is away on Christmas vacation so we can uh watch your house more carefully. This is the IRS. You're late on your taxes, so please send us an iTunes gift card. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, they'll they'll no they'll they'll scope out these places. They'll decide whether or not it's a, vi- a viable target, and they'll come back in force if it is. In this time period that we're talking about, I, I think I've mentioned a few times that Europe is a pretty much a whole, uh, and and that's really a result of the collapse of the Roman Empire and the fallout of all of that because it was politically catastrophic and it was felt throughout Europe for centuries, and the way that that manifested in the British Isles was that when the Romans left the island, there was a bit of a power vacuum there. And Saxon raiders came across from Denmark to the island and managed to establish a pretty strong foothold for themselves on the island to the point where the the native Britons, like the, the, the people who would actually have Celtic background, were pushed all the way to the west end of the, or west side of the island into Cornwall, into Wales, sort of those those sections of the island further north into into Scotland and the bulk of the east and south was 
populated by Saxons and eventually uh, Angles and Jutes, as we talked about last time. So Anglo-Saxon, right? That's where you get that term. So it's already kind of a Germanic, like there's there's a major mix of Germanic and, or or even a um, majority of, of Germanic people on the British Isles with a minority, you know, the entire island of, of Ireland and in these, these farther west countries. But they've spent all this time in Britain. They've kind of turned native, just like we've talked about in so many other circumstances here. And as these Norse groups were kind of pushing, see where they could find places to settle, England looked real good because, you know, Charlemagne had rolled through and more or less united the entire western half of the continent under the Holy Roman Empire. And like, yes, that did fracture into three parts under his sons and was in various, you know, states of of unification throughout the next couple hundred years. But we are talking about some pretty major states with some real political power behind them. England didn't really have that. And as a result, it was it was seen as kind of a, a little more vulnerable than the continent, especially since Normandy had been founded and kind of made to be or or, or had been kind of set up as a, a protective barrier. Now, like now, that doesn't happen until a little bit later than what we're talking about here. But the point remains that France and Germany, or what would become France and Germany, weren't as appetizing a target as the British Isles. There wasn't the same presence uh, established there as in Scotland and Ireland. Uh, there wasn't the same kind of level of vulnerability to it militarily, uh, and it was farther away. So, lots of reasons to stick with the British Isles. But it had always been raids, right? These little war bands. Everything changes in 865 when an army of people that the British would call Danes, um, so likely from Denmark, landed in East Anglia. East Anglia is kind of the furthest southeast portion of the British Isles. Um, Britain is carved up into all these uh, countries or kingdoms, I should say, at this point in time that uh, you'll likely recognize a number of the, the names, but in terms of like where they are, in the actual island, don't don't sweat it too much. Right. Most people don't remember where they are anymore. But, you know, obviously East Anglia coming from the fact that it's in, you know, the east side of the of the island and Anglia after the Angles. They land there and it's different from the normal raiding because it is an actual army. There are at least hundreds of these people. The numbers vary wildly. I've seen everything of from about a thousand or possibly even a little under a thousand to several thousand Danes right. uh, land on the island. Now, from the British point of view, or from the Anglo-Saxon point of view, this was a, a massive, unified, and catastrophic event. This is an entire army of, of Danes under one you know, leadership showing up at the same time, and this is basically the end of the world. The reality is that they were split up under at least three different groups. From a legendary standpoint, they were led by the three sons of uh, a warlord named Ragnar Lodbrok. And they, like this, the same legend says that there was a, a king of Northumbria named Ayala that killed Ragnar and that they were bringing this grand army in response to, you know, to, to avenge their father, basically. Right. This is likely apocryphal that they were there for more sort of broad trend type reasons. Uh, I've seen it associated with uh, various military defeats in uh, what would become France, kind of driving the, these forces out of the continent, basically. It doesn't matter as much why they were there as the fact that 
this isn't a raiding party. This is this is an invasion, and you know everything is a little bit different under those circumstances. I think we can still call them Vikings at least for right now, but their warband is very very big. These people are still going to be. It, they have everything else going for them in terms of calling them Vikings, right? They're still uh, speaking Old Norse. They're still pagan. They're still organized in war bands. They're still, you know, of, of Norse stock, even though they're from Denmark. That's still just kind of a technicality at this point. They don't really see themselves as that much different from anyone from Sweden or, or Norway at this point in time. They spend the next six years, like, marauding through Britain. Um, and no one really seems to quite know what to do about it that many danes in a group is a like a very effective army which is weird because they're not actually normally accustomed to fighting in like large numbers it's usually like hit and fade stuff right it's it's they're they're thugs they're not soldiers but they managed to make it work pretty well very very well actually to the point that they basically had directly north to the kingdom of Northumbria, which is basically the east side of the island, uh, northern England, and uh, a good way up into Scotland. Like, it kind of starts at about York uh, and goes all the way up to Edinburgh. And they managed to defeat the king of Northumbria and install their own ruler. They effectively invade and conquer Northumbria. And next turn their eyes on the kingdom of Mercia, which is basically like right in the middle. It's like a big fat part of the bottom half of, uh, of the British Island. And they managed to take that as well. And this is a crisis of apocalyptic proportions for anyone living on the British Isles at this point, because, uh, the Danes are coming and, um, there's doesn't seem to be any stopping it really. Right. So, I mean, obviously the, the various Kings are throwing everything that they can at this army and to them they're seeing this kind of unified force without any real sense behind it without any well-established goals that they can kind of defend against properly they just seem to be trying to invade everything they're pagan so they can't really trust any treaties or oaths that they might strike up with them in fact they would see it as possibly amoral to treat with these people because they're not christians they don't really know what to do eventually the remaining saxons managed to unite under the kingdom of wessex which is the the uh the very south of the island sort of the the west half of it and it's kind of just in time because in 871 reinforcements come from norway to like bulk up the danish forces right they're 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 here to play ball but under basically miraculous circumstances king alfred the great of wessex manages to defeat them at uh the battle of ashdown and you know, he doesn't exactly drive them from the island, but what he does manage to do is negotiate terms long enough to delay the Danes from progressing any further for the next couple of years to give them a chance to regroup. He has to pay them some money to make that happen, which was seen as kind of weak by his critics in that they should have, you know, they think he should have just gone ahead and defeated them in battle. I mean, the fact of the matter is he couldn't. They tried that part didn't work that well the fact that he managed to defeat them at ashdown at all is is it it was huge yeah he might have gotten a little lucky i mean he was a a capable commander don't get me wrong but you know that that could have been the end of the the saxons in 
Britain right there. But no, he manages to retain them to the, the land that they've taken so far, manages to build up his army further, and the Danes kind of fall to infighting a little bit. It takes a while for them to really get back on their feet anyways. The Saxons catch a lucky break here. Absolutely. No doubt about it. This payment to them, though, kind of sets a bit of a precedent in that the Danes kind of realize that, okay, well, we can essentially run a protection racket on the British Isles. We go to them and we say, it's, well, it's called Danegeld. It's gold for the Danes. Um, you know, well, your, your Danegeld is due. Pay us or we'll attack you. Right. And they'll go, well, we just paid you a couple of months ago. They'll go like, yep, I know. Let's do again. <laughs> really nice uh, country you got here. Be a shame if anything happened to it. <laughs> got a Dane in the back, you know, patting a patting a uh, baseball bat into the palm of his hand. Another one with a Zippo lighter. <laughs> in 876, the Danes kind of finally pull it together under a new leader called Guthrum. No one really knows where he came from, how he manages to actually get them all uh, united under a single leader, um, how he managed to pull the army under a single, you know, leadership, which has really been their problem up until now. If they had managed that earlier on, this probably wouldn't have been an issue. And it all comes to this, uh, all comes to a head in another kind of climactic battle again with with uh, Alfred the the Great leading. Alfred, by the way, means um, elf knowledge. Elf red? No way. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I kind of like that one. I, I found think that's out. going to legitimately change how I view people named Alfred for the rest of my life. I had a very similar experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, got a little off track there for a second. Wow. There's this battle called the Battle of Eddington, and Alfred manages to uh, to defeat them once again. And he went, okay, listen, you guys are here. There's nothing I can do about that. But you guys also can't beat me. We're at a standoff. So here's what we're going to do. I'm king. Deal with it. I get London. Deal with it. London has basically been uh, deserted at this point in time. It's too dangerous. It's right on the, on the edge of Danish territory and Saxon territory. Right. He, he deliberately, he orders people to repopulate London. He goes, it's mine. It's Saxon. That's too bad. Basically, everything that's left of you know uh, East Anglia, of Wessex, Essex, any of these places that hasn't been that haven't been taken over by Danish forces, you know, plus some, they've they've got to take a little something for for winning. That's that's Saxon territory. You stay out. In return, I am leaving you with all of this territory, former basically Mercia and Northumbria, and it's called the Dane Law. And in this territory. Norse law is the law of the land. That is, you guys rule how you want to rule. He's basically essentially setting up a new kingdom. But it's a Danish-led kingdom. And all of a sudden we've stopped talking about Vikings again. But once again, we've got a story that starts with Vikings and can't happen without Vikings. Right. But the Dane law is established. And it's this acceptance that the Danes are part of the british isles now just the way that the saxons have been part of the Dan er, of the british isles since uh the retreat of the the romans right they're here now i'm sure the britons are really sick of this at this point in time but you know it's also kind of old news to them yeah it's 
you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, all that. And I mean, this is set up with certain terms. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's not a complete acquiescence to the Danes. It's kind of done with an eye to the fact that they don't expect the Danes to be able to maintain law and order in this area and that they'll slowly be able to eat away at it again when the time is right. Right. But there's also an understanding by the Saxons that without this uh, recognition and, and to some extent legitimization of the Danes, their time is probably up or that's at least enough in question that it's worth seriously considering making peace with them. Yeah. So yes, the Dane guild is still going to be paid. Yes. You know, Dane law is going to exist in this area, but this is negotiating with terrorists because you have no other choice, right? Is really what it comes down to. Yeah. And there was one other condition to the Dane law. And I'm wondering if you can guess what it is. Oh, oh, that they had to convert to Christianity? Correct. They had to convert to Christianity. And you'll see this time and again, like this is this is not the first time we've had this conversation, where that seemingly innocuous piece of 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 uh of demand is inserted into the treaty, where the Christians who are making that demand realize that it seems almost laughable, and that the the pagans that are agreeing to it are going to see them as suckers for putting it in there when they could have put things like, I don't know, money or land in there. But that culturally speaking, it's planting the seed for the future. Right. It is going to subvert this power structure of the Dane law in such a way that it's, it's, it's going to start making the people within the Dane law more like the Saxons rather than the other way around. That's not really that much of an issue. The Danes didn't bring that many families with them when they came this was a war band and they are now settling the dane law and yes you know sort of normal danish citizens would inhabit you know would come later and inhabit the dane law it would be used as a bit of an outlet for that sort of expansion that we've talked about before but it was a way that people could expand without having to raid which is like we've talked about kind of ideal this was a place that they could come and settle it wouldn't be that much different from home uh, there's a lot of land in that deal. Like we're we're talking like at least half of that island. Yeah, it's a big chunk of 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 territory, and so everyone's happy again. But Alfred, who who's he's he's a really interesting figure, actually. Like I mean, he's he's more than capable of of of, of commanding a battle, but he's really smart, and he's got a really long view on things. And I mean, this this is a guy who has been to Rome personally to meet with the Pope. He's incredibly pious. He understands who he's dealing with, and yet he's still willing to make these deals, understanding that sort of long-term conversion is still a worthy goal. Like, that's not that's not a compromise. That's still an okay way to go about this, because that's the method that's been used everywhere else with a lot of success. And, I mean, there's a reason that he's one of only two monarchs to ever be given the, the, the epithet the great in English history. Right. He basically saved Anglo-Saxon Britain, which is a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's okay. It's all right, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty big deal of people that now live in Britain. Yeah. Or to Anglo-Saxons that lived in Britain at the time. However you want to put that. It's been over a thousand years. I mean, I'm sure we would have gotten over it by now, but <laughs> it certainly would have changed some stuff. Yeah. But as far as they're concerned, 
the Anglo-Saxon way of life has been preserved. And with any luck, will start to creep into the Dane law right. and sort of organically uh, transform it. And once again, we've got Vikings that are going native and are becoming part of the landscape and are probably going to stop using uh, Norse naming uh, structures and, and Norse religion and things like that. The one place, the one place where this tradition actually manages to hang on is in Iceland. Right. Because when they get there, when a man named Garwar Svar, what was it? Svarverson. Svarverson. I like it. When he circumnavigates the island of Iceland in the year 870, um, he claims to be the person who has discovered that island and there's basically no one else there. Right. He doesn't land. Or sorry, he does land for a short amount of time. I apologize. But doesn't spend much time there at all. He ends up coming back. And it's not until you get uh, a man named uh, Ingelfer Arnerson, who sails to the island, establishes uh, Reykjavik in 874, that according to the Norse, at least, the island of Iceland is finally inhabited. Uh, there were some Irish monks there when they got there, but as far as the Vikings were concerned, they had not circumnavigated the island, and therefore that didn't count. These Irish monks had this this tradition. Um, I mean, that's kind of why they ended up in Ireland in the, in the first place. I'm sort of trying to find the most desolate, rocky, just grim, bleak place to set up their their monasteries as this sort of ascetic deprivation of any earthly benefits of any kind whatsoever right. and try and live this miserable life dedicated to prayer in an attempt to lead the most spiritual lives possible and occasionally what you'd get with these were these irish monks who would set off in these these little boats that were essentially animal skin strung over either wood or bone and were barely better than rafts in this sort of I suppose you could call it a literal leap of faith that they would be able to get out somewhere and find a new place to set up an even grimmer, bleaker <laughs> place to live their lives in prayer. Yeah. And some of them found Iceland. Nothing like praying for a more miserable existence. You know, it's it's one of those denying the flesh type. Yeah. Yeah. type philosophies it had been a lot around a long time before christianity and it's it's probably never going to go completely away it's a as, as far as these concepts go this one has a little bit of horse sense to it so yeah um, as i have a question going back to uh dane law yeah so so alfred or <laughs> elf knowledge says that uh okay so so all of this land is yours and you can rule as you see fit mm -hmm. but it was a like you said it was a war band so how how did that go? Like was it was it like I mean did you have like kind of like local uh, kings or warlords or whatever you want to call it? Like how how did that go? The governing of that land. They they essentially imported the the ways that their other established kingdoms like Denmark and Norway. Okay. They they established those government structures in the Dane law. And did did they do that successfully? Uh, relatively the Dane law is not going to last but okay you know it's it's going to last for longer than just a couple of years it doesn't collapse in right. itself like a dying star immediately <laughs> okay it's a slow burn okay yeah I, I mean what ends up happening there is that they they set up they set it up as a kingdom there's going to be a king of the Dane law there for some time and he's going to delegate power to uh Jarls which is what they use for for lords 
which is also the the derivative of the of the term earl like the okay you know yeah. like earl yeah, of yeah, whatever yeah. comes from yarl but yeah they, they they rule it more or less successfully sure but yeah back to uh back to iceland keep in mind that this is in the middle of that warm period right which means that at that point in time iceland was as much as 25 percent covered in forest today it's maybe one percent oh okay yeah so it was a lot less miserable than those priests were hoping for it was still pretty miserable it depends okay. on which which part of the island you live on right you want that that nice gulf stream water keep you warm yeah the the monks chose the the bleak sides <laughs> the the irish monks left when the when the north showed up uh how willingly i'm not entirely sure but uh they didn't stick around and the the sagas don't tend to mention them that much right because that would imply that someone other, other than the norse got there first they brought livestock with them they got there and they realized there were no people to kind of roll into a community so they ended up going back and bringing their thralls and other slaves with them to start families and what that ends up being is this sort of renegade community in this relatively bleak place still absolutely livable but certainly remote that doesn't have a local flavor to take on there are no native peoples in iceland it was empty other than those monks which didn't really contribute to this problem and so what ends up getting brought over is basically as close to a, a preservation of norse society as you get outside of scandinavia itself and that's really interesting when you get to a point after the viking age where you're looking at you know the the directions that norway and sweden and denmark take sort of away from that lifestyle and you've got iceland sitting out there doing its thing and in some ways being more true to the 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 norse past than norway itself yeah um, it's a, it's an interesting little time capsule, which is why you get guys like uh, Snorri talking about these uh, Edic sagas with some authority. Granted, by that time, they're no longer pagan, obviously, as we talked about. But that oral tradition is still there, and that way of life is still there, and that language is still there. Less changed there than it was in, uh, in Norway. But in any case, uh, uh, Iceland is kind of crucial to this whole Viking experience, I suppose you could say. But they did keep going. I mean, you've also got Greenland, which is a great story. Uh, Eric Thorvaldsen, known as Eric the Red, was this guy who, like many other people who went to Iceland, kind of wasn't, he didn't fit in that well. He's kind of an outsider. Right. Maybe did some murders. Um, (laughs) He was an outsider among outsiders. And so he left Norway to, to Iceland, which is where all these outsiders are going. I mean, Iceland was a place that, Going to Iceland was the equivalent of moving to Canada during the previous during this past election. There was this king that came up in uh, in Norway called Harold Fairhair. That was his, his. They all get nicknames, right? And he was really divisive. People didn't like him that much. He's considered the first king of Norway in the in sort of like the unifying sense. That he, it's, I suppose you could call it a sweet story. It depends on how you kind of spin certain bits of it. But he was the king of this little tiny nonsense kingdom that didn't really amount to much. And he was in love with this woman, uh, Gita, who told him that I, that she would never marry him until he was the king of all of Norway. And he said, okay. 
and he went to war and he took over the rest of Norway. No way. And she married him. Wow. I mean, there's a lot of bloodshed and conquest, but he did it for love, man. And then he had as many as 20 sons with a lot of different mistresses and concubines. So sorry. I mean, I know that was a nice couple seconds. Oh, there's he, so much to say about that, but none of it is PG. He, <laughs> he did. He did some wandering. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, he was he was he, he was all over the place to the point where you got to you got to a point around the year 900 or so where basically everyone was saying that they were the illegitimate son of fair hair because there were so many of them. Right. Um, oh, that was the other point, part of it. He also refused to cut his hair until he ruled all of Norway. So he grew his hair out for a full 10 years that it took him to run this conquest. So for, wow. for before, before he managed it, he was known as tangle hair. Uh, Cause apparently he didn't hear about, you know, trimming the ends or brushing. Right. Uh, but he cut it all off. Got married. Wow. I don't know if that helped his, uh, his illegitimate air game or not. <laughs> um, awful. A lot of people left because of this guy. They didn't like him. I mean, he conquered all these places. He brought civil war to Norway. Right. And there's a lot of people who blamed their exodus to Iceland on fair hair. Now, the timeline doesn't really match up that well because he started ruling like maybe two years before Iceland was discovered. Right. But... There's a lot of people who are just like, oh, this place is the worst. I hate fair hair. I'm going to Iceland. And they did. Or, you know, you get the traditional too many people, not enough food kind of kind of issues where it's like, okay, well, I could go raiding, but there's not a lot of good places left to raid. Or I could move to Iceland and it'll be fine because I can settle there. There's no one there. Uh, it'll be great. And that's basically what Eric the Red did. He just moved to Iceland because, you know, of some murders. He got there... He maybe got into a dispute with a neighbor because maybe some of his slaves started a landslide on the, the neighbor's land. And maybe that neighbor got really mad and killed the slaves because of the landslide. And maybe Eric the Red killed the neighbor and both of his sons over that issue. But the guy's name was Eilf the Fowl. So, I mean, maybe he had it coming to him. <laughs> Moved to another part of the island, asked a neighbor to watch some treasures for him specifically these these beads that were passed down in his family maybe when he got back the beads weren't there maybe the guy said that he had never seen the beads and didn't know what he was talking about maybe eric murdered the guy again it kind of sounds like he was looking for reasons to murder people <laughs> the red epithet referred both to his hair and beard and to his fiery fiery personality right he's a real firebrand yeah yeah he um, sounds like a real fun guy <laughs> Kind of the interesting thing about Iceland was that they they uh, they they established something called the Althing, which was the um, which was a which was a council. It performed kind of legislative and judicial roles, but it's an assembly. Like anyone who owns land is technically allowed to vote as part of a thing, and it makes Ireland or Iceland the first modern republic in Europe, which is kind of interesting. And they tended to be like relatively fair. They did note that in all of these murders, Eric had been arguably provoked in some manner. And so they were relatively lenient on him. They, uh, they gave him three years of exile from Iceland uh, as punishment, which is 
not bad for some manslaughter M- multiple yeah. times and places like not even all in the for re- all sorts of reasons <sighs> what a guy and so he hears about these little islands that are a little bit further out than than Iceland. And he goes, I'm going to go check those out. Basically, there's this story about a guy who sailed that far, saw the islands and went, whoa, whoa, whoa I missed Iceland. I got to go back. <laughs> and so he's going to go find them. That's what he decides to do. He's going to he's taking his ball and he's going home. He's done with Iceland. He's getting out of here. And he misses those islands and he keeps going a little bit further and he finds Greenland. There's this interesting thing that happens in the northern Atlantic at certain times of the year, which is that the relatively warm air, uh, I might get this backwards. There's a layer, I believe it's a layer of warm air um, with a lot of cold air sitting on top of it, or it might be the other way around. That combined with the the ocean, like the, the, the temperature coming off the ocean, which is very, very steady, can create sort of a light bending effect. Okay. So you can effectively see a little bit further than the horizon because of it at certain times and under certain conditions right and so what you'll get every once in a while is somebody's able to see just a little further than they should be able to and a lot of times people have brought this up to kind of explain how people like eric the red were able to find stuff like greenland when it should be a little bit too far to be able to tell yeah you also get stories where people will like release ravens at different points in their in their in their journey there's like this this legend of I can't remember if it was Eric or not um, sailing and he's got three ravens ravens being sacred to Odin it's a whole symbolic thing probably not true but like you know partway through the 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 journey he releases one and it flies back the way they were coming from uh, and so he knows that he's not that far from Iceland and then the second time he releases one and it flies around in a circle for a while and comes back to the boat and it's like oh no there's no land anywhere right around this is a problem and he keeps going a little bit further and he releases a third one. And it flies ahead. And it's like, there must be land that way. Um, probably not true, but, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to say how they navigated as well as they did. Those boats are not great. With modern navigating technologies, you can do okay. But the North Atlantic is not something to be trifled with. Anyways, Eric sails off. He finds Greenland. He finds a few inlets that he feels like he can actually set up as a proper settlement. And gets things established, spends some time there. And then he goes back to Iceland. He goes, hey, everybody, I found this great new place. It's called Greenland. Doesn't that sound so much better than Iceland? Kind of neglects to mention the fact that it's it's so much worse than Iceland. It's like the climate is bad. Yeah. In fact, there's almost no way that they're going to be able to survive without constant trade with Europe. But But he sells people on it. They're into it. They like the idea. There's a lot of people like Eric that maybe... Maybe Perhaps did a few murders. Did some murdering. I don't know. It's hard to say. Maybe they're looking for... They just want the choice. That's what it comes down to. They just want the choice to decide for themselves where to live. After they've maybe done some murders. <laughs> <laughs> and so they go with them. And the, tre- the the crossing is terrible. And they lose nearly half of the 25 ships that go. They lose all of the ones that are carrying livestock. There's two kinds of Viking ships, basically. There's a big round one that you, you can actually, like, carry sheep and cows and things like that on. And then there's the long ships. And it's the long ships that actually make it um, because they can properly navigate currents. It's not, you know, these, these big lumbering ones don't quite make the journey. Right. They have a really tough time there, but Eric is resolute that he is going to make things work on Greenland. And he stays there for the rest of his life. He, he, ha- he brings a wife with him. 
has a, a son, Eric, or sorry, uh, uh, Leif, and he, he sets up there for the rest of his life until he's he, he dies about 20 years later of, uh, of a disease. Um, there's apparently a, a plague that's kind of brought with some new settlers from Iceland to Greenland that wipes out a good chunk of the population. And Greenland is tough because they keep trying to live like Europeans on a distinctly inhospitable climate for for that way of life right really hard to grow wheat and keep livestock and do all of that stuff in the in the usual way on that land mass i mean even even as warm as things are then if you sail a little ways north you can find glaciers it's it's not it's not good land right actually weirdly enough about greenland as ill-fated as it sounds like everyone like dying of plagues and it's just a terrible place to live or whatever it's actually going to last until the 15th century. People That's are going to live there. Pretty impressive. Yeah. And I mean, it's it keeps getting tougher and tougher because it's less well uh, supported by Norway. Yeah. They just kind of decide not to bother with it anymore, which I completely understand, to be yeah. honest with you. They kind of see the, the, the inhabitants as being stubborn. Stubborn murderers? Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> Who are just too proud to come back to a perfectly reasonable uh inhabitable place yeah well it'd be like i don't know it'd be like like an ex-girlfriend like leaving and she's having a hard time you're like oh I'll give me some money like for groceries or whatever and then like you know she goes on she's getting by she's got a new boyfriend you're like oh, you i i don't think i would work as a as I, who would i don't think i would have come up with that metaphor no but it's like but point being like you know these people left norway so like yeah why would well, I mean, for a while they did have a treaty specific, specifying that there would be at least one ship per year yeah. of supplies. So, I, I mean, they, they did have reasons, but, you know, the, the, the reality of that situation just kind of catches up with you after a little while. Yeah. But interestingly enough, the thing that ends up destroying these colonies is when this warm period ends and the, the what's known as the Little Ice Age occurs starting around 1250 or so, the glaciers creep south and bring with them Inuit who weren't actually in the area that, you know, the, the Norse settlers had, had uh, inhabited, but I mean, there'd been signs here and there that maybe some people had been here at some point and in a complete reversal of the usual narrative, the Inuit were seen as incredibly vicious and incredibly skilled and just, you know, all of the records that we have of them, to be to be honest, from both sides, involve the Inuit just mercilessly slaughtering these Norse settlers who have given up the, the Viking way of life hundreds and hundreds of years before. Right. They were, yeah, it's, it's, it makes for some grisly reading, to be honest with you. Occasionally for no reason whatsoever. A lot of times for no reason whatsoever. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's. It's interesting because that's not usually the, the story you get about relations between either Vikings and other people or indigenous peoples and Europeans. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I love the, the flip side of it. Neither version is really all that great. But yeah, they were, they were essentially wiped out by Inuit. Wow. But we're jumping the gun a little bit on that one. We do have to talk at least briefly about Vineland. A sailor named Bjarni Hurjolfsson. Just a couple of years. Yes, his name was Bjarni. Bjarni. Yeah. I like it. Just a couple of years after Greenland is founded, around the year 985 or so, 
he hears about this place and he's, he figures he's going to check it out. He's got a couple, you know, he's got like an uncle and a cousin or whatever there. He's going to go, go see what's going on. He sails off from Iceland. He's going on just like rumors and hearsay of how you get to the place. Misses it. Keeps going. And from our best estimates, ends up at Baffin Island. Sails down along the coast going, this doesn't sound anything like what anyone talked about with Greenland. What's going on here? This place sucks. Sails down further, ends up near Labrador, and he sees trees. So many trees. And he goes, this is awesome. You know, he's keeping a chart the whole time that he's going, but he decides that he doesn't have time to dock here. He knows that Greenland doesn't have trees. He knows that he's so, so lost, and he does not want to stick around and see what happens. Retraces his route, sails back, Finally finds what he recognizes from descriptions of the west coast of Greenland. And he lands there and, and basically has the best bar story for the rest of the... Yeah, probably for the year, I'd imagine. Right. Back when bar stories had a much, a much lower bar. Guys, I missed, I missed Greenland and I found all of these trees. No way! <laughs> Doesn't quite have the same... <laughs> Guys, I missed the exit and I was at this... I've never seen a strip mall with that combination. <laughs> it was wild. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. He gets back and he's telling these stories for years. Everyone's hearing him going, listen to Barney over here. Sorry, Bjarni. I apologize. <laughs> but around the year 1000, Eric the Red's son, Leif Erikson, also known as Leif the Lucky, goes, you know what? Maybe old Bjarni's onto something here. He looks him up and he buys his boat from him. He's like, I'm going to use your boat because I know that one can make the journey. Right. He recreates the journey based on his his description. This is like 15 years later, right? And he finds all the stuff that that Bjarni describes. And he sails down Baffin Island. He sails uh, past Labrador with all these these lush trees. And he ends up at the... We're we're pretty sure. I mean, all of this is going off of you know, partially off of Norse sagas, which, you know, were passed down through generations before written down in the 13th century in Iceland, which, as you can imagine, aren't exactly the most accurate things on the market. Right. We're mixing that with, like, the archaeological records, things like that, to try and piece this together as best we can. But we figure he landed on basically the northern tip of the island of Newfoundland at a site that we call now uh, Lonzo Meadows, which we determined in about the year 1960 or so was a Viking settlement. They at least spent a winter here and is the first recorded European settlement in North America. So suck it's Christopher Columbus. This is the secret mission of this podcast. I need to take that guy down. (laughs) He's the worst. I hate him so much. Everything's terrible about Christopher Columbus. And it's weird because we've known this for over 50 years and still we celebrate Christopher Columbus as the guy who discovered the Americas? What's up with that? Yeah. Get out of here. Leif yeah. Erikson. People just want a reason to celebrate. <sighs> so many better people celebrate, man. I've, t- I've, I've done this rant to other guests on other episodes. <laughs> I won't do it again. But, you know, the, the guy got to the Caribbean and went, hey, look, these look like pretty cool slaves. I'm going to take them and sell them to prostitution. Great. Cool guy. Yeah. Not a cool I think guy. I'm an Indian. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best. I'm Christopher Columbus. I think the world is like 25% smaller than it actually is. (laughs) I'm sorry. 
I'm done now. It's the worst. The settlements only lasted a short while. It turned out that the natives were incredibly dangerous. They spent all their time fighting what were likely Beatuk Indians or, or natives. We're not entirely sure, but they were incredibly dangerous. And really what it came down to was that anything that they could get in what they were calling Vineland, they could get in Europe for less danger, less hassle. Meet people that they could speak their language and might not kill them. Right. It was called Vineland because they, they think they probably ranged a little further south south than just Newfoundland, possibly as far as Maine, but but likely no further than that. And and it's like honestly probably not past Nova Scotia. And some of the crew found probably cranberries, but mistook them for grapes. Right. And thought, hey, we can make wine out of this. And that's why it was called Vineland. <laughs> yeah. Thought they were grapes. But you could get all that stuff in Europe. And you didn't have to sail this crazy treacherous route that right. like even then was really dangerous, let alone when the world got colder again. Yeah. And so like it wasn't really worth it to them to to try and establish this little foothold in this completely foreign land where they were expecting to be attacked by the locals at any point in time and were really, really afraid of the locals. Like I, I can't stress that enough. The the few encounters that they had with them did not go well. They really didn't go well. And I mean, we are talking about a small group of probably severely malnourished Vikings that are camped out on the northern point of, of Newfoundland. It's not, it's maybe not them at their best, but, yeah. you know, they still didn't fare well. Not at all. Uh, and so they, they kind of retreated and, and people forgot that Vineland was a thing really outside of Scandinavia. And even within Scandinavia, people didn't necessarily take it seriously as a as being as being north america it was thought that maybe it was just a, another island that you know wasn't wasn't firmly established yet right so vikings did land here but it was extremely short-lived mm -hmm. and yeah not really thought of as a big deal by the people who were landing here right um not much bigger of a deal than finding well, Greenland. that's that's how i would portray it too if i got totally if i wasn't cut out for it mm -hmm. and yeah. went there and then couldn't hack it and came back Oh, hey, how was it? Ah, it's, it's not that great. It wasn't, wasn't a big deal. Uh, it's a small island. I don't know. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's not quite what I meant by it. I meant more like no one came back and went, I discovered a new continent. This is this is huge. Right, right, right. Um, You know, the barrier had been broken between the old world and the new. They didn't realize that they had broken it. Right, right. Okay. That's that's more what I meant. Yeah. But also what you said, that's that's also very, very true. And that's that's kind of the westward expansion of the Vikings. I think it's really time that we took a break because we've gone a little bit long here. But when we come back, I want to talk about the end of the Viking Age. And I think how it ends is going to completely knock your socks off. I was not expecting right. this. I didn't know this was rolled in. I guarantee that you do not. Get ready. Cool. Here on HI101 with Paul McGowan. Hey. And... Man, this whole Viking thing has really gotten out of hand. Yeah. A little bit. I know. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about, you know, Scandinavia. Yeah. And like raiding parties and Yeah, and like what they I mean, were were big be like were the big beards a thing? Like I guess mustaches no were know. a big thing. Really? Mustaches were a big thing. That's almost better. Yeah. And there was this hairstyle. That involved shaving your whole head except for two strips along the side. Right. And growing those really long and like braiding them behind your head. Wow. Yeah. Like a really manly version of ponytails. 
Kinda. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's one thing that the records do say that the, the Vikings were big on was bringing fashion. Like, especially in the British Isles. Like, it became, like, very fashionable to dress like a Dane. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I mean, you've teased the hell out of this, uh, the, the end of the Viking Age. You know what? I hate doing that normally because, like... Because now my expectations are, like, aliens came... And made first contact, and that's the end of the Viking Age. I think that expectation might be a little unreasonable, Paul. <laughs> but, but, I mean, my mind is running wild. Okay. Well, we're, we're going to get it. And you know what? We're going to get there, and it's going to make so much sense. But you won't have seen it coming, which is the great thing about this ending. Because I've been setting it up since, like, 20 minutes into the first episode. Okay. It's, it's, it's a doozy. But let's stop talking about setting it up and actually get into it. All right. All right? Okay. 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 So you got your Denmark, right? Yeah. It's a Norse country. Scandinavian. It's, they're speaking old Norse there. But it is a country. It's a kingdom. And the first historically recognized king is a guy named Gorm the Old, which is just mm, yeah. so good, who ruled Denmark around 936 through 958. Before this, there's there's plenty of Norsemen. It's just that it's a fractured group of people right and he managed to consolidate basically all of jutland plus a little bit more so maybe the the northernmost third of the peninsula or so but it's enough that we can call him like the the you know progenitor of the the danish royal line right he had a son named harold who was known as harold bluetooth this is where bluetooth comes from actually really yeah the the symbol for bluetooth yeah is runic Okay. Right? You know, the B with yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a combination for the rune for H and the rune for B. Wow. Yeah. And the reason for that is that Harold went ahead and conquered the rest of the peninsula, uniting all of Denmark. It's this idea of, like, unifying, right? Yeah. Because the, the whole idea between or behind the, the Bluetooth protocol was, like, being able to unify phones and, and computers, being able to get them to communicate. Sure. And the guys who invented the protocol are Danish, so they looked to their history for, for inspiration, and that's what they came up with. Cool. Kind of cool. Harold Bluetooth was maybe less cool than that might suggest. He was a pretty cool guy. The name probably comes from him having like a dead tooth. Yeah. Bla- Black tooth might be a, a more like reasonable translation of his name. Right. Or like dark tooth, something like that. But you know, Bluetooth's pretty good. I like it. He conquers the rest of the peninsula, but th- but what that ends up doing is bringing him into direct contact with the the newly reinstated holy roman empire see after charlemagne there wasn't technically a holy roman emperor for quite a while um he had children who who were kings and who ruled over a lot of that area and some of them took on the the title of emperor but religiously mandated like like crowned by the pope type holy roman emperors they didn't come back until otto the first he was the first like reinstated holy roman emperor and he didn't like the idea of bluetooth like extending down into his territory there were a lot of wars there a lot of wars and harold bluetooth did not come out the better of those those wars those conflicts and uh ended up getting kind of pushed back a little bit in his territory and ended up converting to christianity actually under under pressure due to these military campaigns right um, again probably just a, another one of the terms tacked on to like a, a peace treaty and this is this is 974 that he's he's been defeated and it makes him very unpopular in the entire Norse world because he lost to 
one of them Christian kings. What's going on, man? Like, come on. It's kind of the general sentiment there. And now, now Denmark's entirely Christian. Like, what's going on there? And yeah, there's this whole thing. And it's bad enough that there's an uprising led by uh, Bluetooth's son, a guy named uh, Sven, uh, Sven Forkbeard. Wow. Um, so the good names kind of skip a generation in that family. Uh, you don't think Gorm Forkbeard is old. good? Harold Bluetooth is kind of... But he's got a forked beard. It's very, it's very clear why he's got this name. I know what Sven. No, but I'm saying Sven Forkbeard is the better name oh, than Harold gotcha. Bluetooth. Oh, I yeah, see. I'm saying Harold kind of got. I thought you were taking a shot at Forkbeard. Oh no, I love Forkbeard. Oh, I'm all in on Forkbeard. Apologies. It's likely him that overthrew him. Like just a couple years, a couple years later, it's it's about 986 that this uprising happens, and there's there's disparate um, accounts of what happened to Bluetooth. Likely executed maybe in hiding for a couple of years before dying of other causes. But I mean, it didn't go well for him. Let's, let's put it that way. Now, Bluetooth had also managed to consolidate some territory in Norway. It's really important to understand that Denmark and Norway are very close together. Like crossing that, that area is not, it's not a long journey at all. Right. And having political sway in, in both areas is not like, it's not unreasonable at all especially when so much of this is kind of based on family rather than, you know, like, yeah, Fairhair had managed to unite all of Norway, but it's not as though the Jarls didn't have their own allegiances to some degree or another. And once he was defeated by, by Otto, he lost a lot of that sway back in, in Norway, but Forkbeard went ahead and reestablished that. He's like, no, 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 these, the, I, I do control this land. And through a series of different political machinations, he ended up being king of Norway as well by 995. Now, it's a little bit more fractured at this point in time because Fairhair had had so many sons, so many of whom ended up claiming land because of their varying degrees of legitimacy stemming from their their parentage. Um, But basically through force, uh, as well as through diplomacy, Forkbeard takes the throne. Enter a guy named Olaf uh, Tryggvason also known as Olaf Crowbone, which I think is a better name because he used to read Crowbones as a, as a type of like scrying of, of fortune telling. No way. Yeah. But how do you, did you like, like how, how does that, how does that you, I mean, th- did people own crows? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Crows everywhere. They're Vikings. It just kills a crow. No, I know. But I mean like, so if, if somebody's reading your tea leaves, it's like tea that you drank, but like a, a crow bone could have come from anywhere. He kills the crow. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, so you kill a crow and you bring the crow to... It's no different than reading, uh, say, chicken entrails, right? You kill the chicken and then you read the... Right, yeah. There's a lot of weird stuff that gets used for fortune telling, man. I I get what you're saying, though. I I do. Yeah, he was was a really superstitious guy. And that, that superstition ends up being a really interesting serendipitous point to Olaf because he goes and sees a, a seer... And he's heard about the seer from all over the place, has a very good reputation. And he goes, okay, there's lots of people who say that there's seers out there. I want to know that this one's for real. And so he sends uh, a servant of his to go see the seer and say that he is Olaf. And the seer goes, no, you're not. I know Olaf's coming to see me. You're not Olaf. Stop wasting my time. And so he comes back. I mean, all of this is legend, right? Yeah. But still, it's, it's still a good story. I'm still going to, I'm still going to tell it. Olaf is impressed. He thinks this is this is good stuff. This guy's the real deal. <laughs> and so he goes to, to see this guy and asks for his fortune to be told. 
And this guy tells him this whole story about how he's going to end up in a battle and he's going to be wounded terribly, but that after seven days, his wounds are going to disappear completely. And when that happens, he needs to convert to Christianity because if he does not, then his wounds are going to come back and kill him. And very shortly after he gets this fortune, that exact thing supposedly happens to him. His band is beset by bandits. He's injured terribly in the fighting. And after seven days, he gets better. And he goes, whoa, got to get baptized right now. (laughs) Now, how much of this is true? I don't know. There's a lot of stories around Olaf Crowbone that are kind of like definitely didn't happen, but kind of speak to something a little bit deeper about his character. Sure. There's another really good one where he, you know, it's after a battle and there's this feast and he meets this old man who, who only has one eye and he spends the whole night talking to this man. And, and, and this man seems to know things that no one else is supposed to know. And, you know, knows no secrets about Olaf's plans for the future, you know, for, for military plans and things like that. And he's telling Olaf all of these things. And this is all really clear allusion to Odin, who, uh, according to legend, lost one of his eyes in order for, uh, in order to drink from the, the, the fountain of knowledge or the well of knowledge, sorry. And so like, this is to anyone listening to this, they, they know exactly what it's signaling at. Right. And it's at this point in the story where this bishop that Olaf has been traveling with since his, since his conversion comes in and, is, and, and he's kind of like, Hey, Olaf, buddy, you're getting real tired, right? Maybe you should go to bed now. Might be time to, might be time to go. And, and he's like, oh, okay. And he goes to bed cause he does feel tired. And when he wakes up, he wakes up in the middle of the night and he's like, wait, I need to talk to that guy. He knew too much. I need to talk to him one more time. And he goes and no one has actually seen this guy except for uh, a, a cook in the kitchen. who, Or sorry, no one saw the guy leaving, I should say. Right. Except for a, a cook in the kitchen who says that before he left, the guy basically gave him two sides of beef. And we're like, you guys should, you know, like cook this up it's going to be really he's like like this is kind of poor fare for a king he deserves better cook this up make for make a real feast and olaf hears this and he goes that was odin throw that meat in the garbage we're not eating that it's a gift from a pagan god and it's kind of like okay well this guy's clearly got some major conflicts going on between his original or, or or his his former self like this this pagan leader because i mean he's still reading crow bones he's still having these uh conversations with odin supposedly but on the other hand he's still you know he he believes in this prophecy he converts to christianity he takes it very seriously travels with a bishop and there's this interesting tension there where it's kind of like clearly he's not in you know whole hog yeah but he believes so strongly in this idea that he needs to be christian that he becomes a bit of a fanatic and the way that that ends up kind of manifesting is he goes back to norway and forkbeard's been a little bit hands-off in the norwegian part of of the uh, of the kingdom and there's this uh there's this jarl there named harkin and again this is probably for the purposes of the the story let's face it but he's apparently like like the vo- the most vile type of of pagan he's practicing the most um you know outlandish versions of sacrifice and things like that uh you know, according to the stories, he's recently invoked, um, you know, the you know the, the Lord's right to uh, new brides on like two different lords in the last couple of you know in in the, in the last little bit. Everyone hates the guy. He's just the worst. He's he's a complete, you know, melodrama villain, right? 
And Crowbone shows up and goes, listen, make me king. I can do so much better. Like, I'm, I'm Christian. I will show you Christian ways. You won't have to deal with this monster anymore. He puts a, a bounty off out on the guy's head and, and somehow manages to convince people to like, yeah, accept him as an actual leader. And as soon as he does, he goes around and he starts conquering neighboring kingdoms, forcibly converting them to Christianity. And he's this kind of hurricane rolling through the country, converting en masse where Norwegian Peninsula proper had been a holdout of paganism paganism up until this point not that long before they were kind of mocking the danes for having converted he's also sending out messages to iceland he's sending out missionaries to iceland you guys need to convert olaf is king now we need to uh get on board this whole christianity thing right sends messages as far as greenland uh leif erickson actually converts to christianity and tries bringing it back to greenland with them Eric the Red doesn't really go for it, uh, but he ends up dying before it's really a strong cultural force of any sort. It causes this, uh, this, this sort of crisis in Iceland because so many people get on board so quickly with this idea of like, well, maybe we should look into this whole Christianity thing versus people who are going like, no, you're turning your back on your culture and your heritage and your religion. This is, this is terrible. But they're, they're an assembly-based community, an assembly-based culture. And they decide to talk it over and have a vote. Like, what should we do about this whole religion thing? And there's this one dude, and his name is uh, Thorgir Thorkelson. I know. I probably said it wrong. It probably says it sounds better than that in real life. It sounds pretty good. Thorkelson? Or Thorkelson? I don't know. Maybe I'll look at it. Either up. way. Great name. Great name. He's kind of the equivalent of a Supreme Court justice in this system. He's what's known as the speaker. He's like a, a, a moderator, an arbitrator. And they go, we need you to figure this out. He's been in politics for years. He knows what he's doing. He's well-respected by the community. And he goes off and he spends two straight days thinking about what to do here. And he comes back and he says, if we don't make a decision about this, our community is going to be torn in two. We are going to have a civil war over this. We like No good will come of fighting over this. We need to make a decision now. And here's what I'm deciding. Iceland as a country, Iceland as a whole, is going to convert to Christianity. Every person is going to be baptized Christian. That will keep foreign powers happy. We will retain the right right to perform two rituals that are important to paganism. One is the consumption of horse meat, which is prohibited under Christian laws. I mean, specifically in regards to doing so in in a pagan rite. Yeah. The other is exposure of infants, which is partially ceremonial, partially utilitarian when you are a 10th century Viking. It's not pretty, but it's a reality of that life. So the idea of a a child who is born and who isn't physically fit is just left to die. Yep. Okay. Yep. It's it's one of those... Not okay, like I'm cool with it. Like, okay, like I, I get it. I understand. I also understand the reason why you feel a desperate need to explain yourself right now. <laughs> it's uncomfortable to talk about. I mean, it's one of those things that that just in terms of social mores has just we've we've shifted so far away from that that it seems quite literally barbaric. Yeah. Um, and the idea that someone would fight for the right to continue doing that, it, it's it's quite bizarre, but there you have it. The other part of this compromise was that people would be allowed to continue practicing pagan rites at home specifically through the 
the loophole in the law saying that a judge or magistrate or other official needs to have witnessed pagan ritual with their own two eyes for it to be a crime. They couldn't assume it based on evidence and hearsay wasn't good enough as submitted evidence. You had to see it. And besides, no one's going to turn in their neighbors for doing what they themselves are doing anyways. Yeah. And so his kind of Solomon style, uh, I was going to say cutting the baby in two, but that that metaphor doesn't really work that well here, does it? <laughs> his, his, his judgment on this whole thing is really clever. I mean, it gets Crowbone off their back because they did what he's asking. It allows people to continue doing what they want to do in private. It's kind of the whole idea of keep the government out of the privacy of your home. Yeah. And, you know, they see which way the wind is blowing. Things are going Christian. There's less and less pagans every day. This allows people to have that sort of natural cultural transition into Christianity that is being forced on other places, often at the expense of borderline civil war in some cases. Like when you look at what's happening in in Norway at this point in time, people are dying over this. This is a very, very peaceful transition. And it's it's kind of remarkable, actually, that they pulled that off. Yeah. You know, I kind of made it sound like Crowbone was just some dude that showed up. That's not really fair. He was likely a descendant of Fair Hair himself. He did have a legitimate claim on all of this. That being said, there are a lot of descendants of Fair Hair. And just because he had this sort of divine righteousness thing going on doesn't mean that he was actually untouchable and eventually he was defeated in one of these battles trying to take over a neighboring kingdom uh he was really only king for about five years it's a it's a fast burn right he, he made a lot of changes in that five years but it wasn't a long time really in the grand scheme of things and when he was defeated forkbeard stepped back in and went crazy ride am i right guys anyways here i am your new king forkbeard i'm christian by the way <laughs> yeah i was i was king before actually i'm i'm also king again now what's up with that pro bone guy right anyways <laughs> let's get back down to business but he wasn't satisfied with just norway he wanted to unite all of norse culture iceland had already stepped in line which was great and that really only left oh and and you know i i don't talk a lot about sweden in this whole thing that's because the ideas of norway and sweden and even Finland, to some extent, are really mutable at this point in time. It's a lot of kind of kingdoms that would become these countries right. at some point after many things changed hands in many different directions over a lot of time. Sweden's kind of doing a lot of the, the same sort of things as Norway at this point. It's just different kings. Every once in a while, Norse kings would go in and take over Swedish kingdoms, vice versa, all of that. So you can kind of assume that there's the same stuff going on there. We don't have to get into every single battle. But anyways, what's left is England. See, the Danelaw hadn't lasted this entire time. It had kind of shrunk over time culturally, as we talked about after that injunction by, by Alfred that they become Christian. And it had finally, be, it had finally been defeated militarily. It, it, it was defeated under a guy named Eric Bloodaxe, which is just, like, frankly, disappointing. Really didn't live up to that name. Yeah. Uh, in 954, Danelaw didn't really exist anymore. And... You know, I guess Forkbeard kind of got a taste for it. He he was busy reuniting all of these, you know, past glories of of Norse culture. He figured maybe I can maybe I can keep that going. See, in England right now we have a king named Ethelred the Unready, which 
is maybe a bad translation, but it kind of sums up where this whole thing is going. Yeah. Unready is maybe a, is maybe better translated as ill-advised, as in he had bad advisors. In general, his court was just not well-administered, and it wasn't necessarily his fault. He started ruling at a very young age. Like he would have been a, a teenager, maybe even maybe even before. I'm thinking, I'll, I'll look it up, but I'm thinking he was like 12 or something like that when he came to the throne. Right. And in general, people that come to the throne that early tend to have poor reigns because they don't come to the throne ready to rule. They come to the throne under this system of advisors that are, you know, constantly pulling people in one direction or the other for their own gain. So it doesn't make him a great leader necessarily. There are exceptions, but he wasn't one. That's all there is to that. Yeah. Forkbeard invades England and is pushed back and grabs another beachhead and is pushed back again. This goes back and forth for over a decade. It's 13 years later, in fact, that he finally gets a foothold, lays siege to London, and basically starves the city out, including Ethelred. And he decides to spare Ethelred's life, but he sends him to exile in Denmark. He's actually got some family in Denmark, and he figures, eh, or sorry, uh, uh, Normandy. And he figures, ah, he can't do any harm there. I'm going to take over the throne. And it kind of looks like it's the end of the Saxon line at that point, because we've got Danes on the throne. But five weeks later, Forkbeard drops dead of an illness. And here's the problem. He was never coronated. They never actually crowned him king in that five weeks. He was busy doing other things. It's not as though a siege breaks and, you know, the entire thing's finished. There's there's details to work out. Sure. And the Danes go, okay, well, this is, uh, this is a little this is a lot awkward, but not necessarily an issue. Forkbeard's son is king now. It's Canute the Great. The Saxons go, well, no, hang on. He was never even made king. It doesn't count. This is like at best a revolt and it's over now let's bring ethelred back in and so there's these factional lines that, that come up right and ethelred comes back and he's ready to rule and it's all good and the next three years is spent fighting between these two factions the danes and the, and the saxons starts back up again trying to determine who's actually going to rule england and ethelred doesn't make it to the end of this conflict he dies in april of 1016 and his son uh, takes over, a guy named Edmund Ironside. Solid. Yeah. Yeah, really good. But there's all these little skirmishes everywhere. You know, it's 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 just mayhem. And Canute is pushing so hard for this same vision that his father had of uniting Denmark, Norway, and England. He wants to rule it all. Um, and the whole thing goes to a siege again. Again, a negotiated peace. Edmund dies under some suspicious circumstances. No one's entirely sure what exactly happened there. A lot of conflicting reports, but he may have been assassinated. Hard to say. Okay. What was the official cause of death? Good question. He kind of disappeared. Really? I've seen all sorts of stuff. Illness was uh, expelled to the continent and lived many happy years anonymously. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Wow. It's okay. A lot. Like, I I don't normally just straight up go. Who knows on this show? But this is one of those cases where it's like, yeah, no, there's just too many conflicting, uh, conflicting stories. Yeah. Uh, everything from Danish treachery to uh, English cowardice. 
uh, and you know everything in between. Depends on who's telling the story here. Right. Making Canute king of England, and you know keep in mind Canute is you know he, he's a Dane. He's got Viking blood in him, and there are still the Saxons there, and there are plenty of of um, people who are from mixed Danish and Saxon stock in England. It, it's not as though the Saxons are gone necessarily, but you know that whole thing of of holding them off with the Dane law. It didn't really last terribly long. And that seems like the spot where this whole like raid thing ends, but we're gonna extend it like a little bit further. Because Canute's grandson uh was a guy named Edward the Confessor, King of England. And Edward's a big deal because he never married. He was incredibly pious and decided to take a vow of chastity which is not a thing that people usually like in a king they're not big into that yeah but like extremely religious very very committed to his faith and he had no direct heir when he died and so his death turned the country upside down like it was it was mayhem because who takes over now right there's not there's not a direct heir succession uh crisis is always a complete mess sure it's just how it goes and another grandson of canute is currently king of norway they actually sp- split it up after canute's death a guy named harold the third and he goes i'm gonna finish like this this whole thing is ridiculous it should have stayed unified after canute i'm gonna make or i'm gonna put it back the way it needs to be we're going to make the british isles norse like none of this you know, messing around with with uh, Anglo-Saxon traditions, none of this British or Britain stuff, none of this Celtic stuff. We're going to we're going to finish this this expansion, bring Britain into the fold along with Denmark and along with Norway where it belongs. And so he lands uh, on the British Isles with a massive army, and it's in a lot of ways based on the old warband system of. Uh, distributing orders because it's broken up into it's broken up into war bands and he's got all of these jarls along with him leading their own war bands which again are broken up into smaller units but they're all there they're there ready to take this and it's seen as like a not a sure thing but something worth giving like full um full effort to to uh, to make happen meanwhile in the interim after uh after edward's death there's there's still a there's still technically a saxony in in england and the king of of saxony uh, a guy named um harold godwinson he hears that the danes are coming for you know that that northern coast and he scrapes together as big an army as he can possibly muster in this sort of new hybrid danish saxon british uh society because despite the fact that he's saxon and despite the fact that there's all of these danes just because uh, Canute had taken over the island didn't mean that the Danes stopped being enemies, right? They were still paying the Danegeld, which was like, they, they, they were really upset about that. They were kind of like, well, what do you mean we still need to keep paying protection money? And it's kind of like, well, sorry, like this is this is what England does, is pay the Danegeld, pay up or we're coming for you. Right. And like, so, so like nothing had really changed in that dynamic. It was just kind of who was paying the Danegeld and that was Danes paying to other Danes. They hated that. Yeah. But Godwinson decided he's going to defend the realm. He's going to do what Edward would have done if he was still alive. 
he was going to do what he believed that Edward's heirs would have done if they were alive or if they existed. And he turns and he marches north and meets Harold III in battle. And Godwinson wins at something called the Battle of Stamford Bridge. And it's not just that he won a battle. Harold was killed. Most of his Jarls were killed. A small fraction of the ships that came over actually even made it away. It was something like 25 out of 300 ships actually limped away from this battle. It utterly decimated not only the, the Norse troops, but also the, the nobility. It was catastrophic. Harold's son, Olaf III, survived the battle. He was there. He saw his father and countless others killed. Um, and they managed to make it back to Orkney and kind of lick their wounds before retreating back to Norway finally. And he was so shaken by what he'd seen that he believed that Britain was basically uh, unholdable for a Norse king. He also believed that probably they were better off approaching the rest of Europe diplomatically or through trade or, you know, th the kind of things that a ruler turns to when he's seen something as horrific as, as that level of defeat on the, on the battlefield. Yeah. And he ended up being called Olaf uh, the Peaceful because of the unprecedented peace that he that he ruled over. I mean, uh, it was it was some good times for Norway. And you're sitting here going, okay, well, we're just going to twist ending, blah, blah, blah. Here's the thing. Godwinson, the guy who de defeated all of these Norse, two, or sorry, three days after that battle, got word of another landing party on its way, this time from Normandy headed by someone named William the Bastard. Godwinson turns and he heads south. Takes him a little under two weeks to get there. And not two weeks after the expulsion of the Norse, Godwinson fights at the Battle of Hastings in 1066, in which William the Conqueror takes over Saxon Britain and establishes the current British monarchy line. This is the start of modern English history in most counts. Wow. You've heard of the Battle of Hastings? Yeah. You've heard of William the Conqueror? Yeah. But what we didn't know is that not only was he victorious, mostly because of a very costly battle that was fought, fought against Norse invaders two weeks prior, but he was also the great-grandson of Robert of Normandy. Remember Hrolf? Yeah. The Viking who was given the fiefdom of Normandy in exchange for protection against other Vikings. Wow. Any way you slice this, like, Britain is Viking, man. Wow. Any way you slice this. The Normans, they were Norse. Yeah. The Saxons, defeated by a Dane in the form of Fortbeard and then Canute. It's just a question of which Vikings were going to take it. It was never a question of whether or not the Vikings were going to take Britain. Wow. Yeah. How's that for your alien invasion? Very cool. There's not really much Viking that happens after 1066. You've got Olaf III, who's basically protectionist at this point in time. You've got William the Conqueror, who's busy consolidating power within Britain. Iceland is kind of doing its own thing. Greenland is barely hanging on for dear life. There's not really anyone left to consider Viking. And so William the Conqueror had been in England so long 
Because he was what? Third generation? William the Conqueror? Yeah. He was fourth generation Norman. Right. Which is in France. Across the channel, right? Right, right. I mean, functionally, and, and that's and that's the irony of this, where you look at somebody like Edward the Confessor, and he's functionally Saxon, right? Yeah. He's, he's Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. You look at someone like William the Conqueror, and he's functionally French. You know, the guy's grown up Christian. He's grown up speaking the local dialect. It's not, it's not really a Viking, but at the same time... It's not far back that he was. Yeah. And that's that's the that's this weird ghost effect that the Vikings have everywhere that they touch, right? Like there's nothing really left that's strongly Viking about yeah. them. There's nothing strongly Norse left after they settle down somewhere. As soon as they set aside their weapons, they stop being Vikings and they start being whatever it is in the place that they are. And they're kind of okay with that. So you got to look a little closer to find their effects on places like france on turkey on iran on on russia and, and and ukraine like all of these places have been somehow affected i mean we didn't even get into it but there were viking raiding parties that that landed in sicily in the 10th century i mean like it's 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 kind of the last time in certain ways that there was a real cultural clash within europe itself there's always going to be outside forces. You know, you look at things like Spain and the Reconquista or, you know, you know, other things like that where it's 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 really culturally challenging. But this this meeting of the the, the pagan Norse with the sort of the Christian Holy Roman Empire is, is the last time that there was really that that butting of heads. And the way that it resolves is through that Norse tendency to set aside their Viking ways and, and take up the mantle of wherever they are now. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how many different aspects of European history they ended up touching in the process. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's Vikings. It's accidentally the founding of modern England. It's accidentally the founding of Russia. Uh, it's accidentally the finding of the new world. It's accidentally a lot of topics. Yeah, no kidding. This, uh, this research was a wild ride. Yeah. And uh, they don't, and they don't get credit for any of it really no they're they're horrific brutes that come up out of the sea and <laughs> pillage and plunder yeah no of course not that's that's never been true and i mean you know you you get why the the sort of one-sided history of it portrays them that way yeah and you got to be careful of the the backswing where they're all just peaceful farmers who are you know looking for uh something to do in the in the off season because that's not true either it's it's somewhere in the middle yeah but their their effect is is so widespread so widespread yeah it's it's absolutely amazing yeah i don't really have a whole lot else to tell you is there anything that springs to mind in terms of questions or just reactions no i no? think it's just i'm going to go home and and let all of this sink <laughs> in on the long car ride home just like how yeah yeah there are so many different stories there yeah, it's kind of amazing. It is kind of amazing. I mean, the Norse were certainly not the first people displaced out of that section of the world. We mentioned a couple of times that the Germanic migrations of people like the the Goths and the Huns came out of that area, at least originally, centuries, centuries, centuries back. So it wasn't a new thing. I mean, this is kind of, it's been slow injections of, of Vikings of, of some form or another throughout European history. But 
this one we had some pretty good records of and and um we thought we knew pretty well up until the last hundred years or so yeah and uh, the narratives really really changed a lot they were kind of they were kind of everywhere yeah kind of doing everything yeah wow all right well thank you so much for coming on the show today thanks for having me the Viking Age, like many seemingly random or senseless pieces of history as defined by observers, ended like it began, due to big-picture systemic causes. The defeat at Stamford Bridge seems definitive, but even that wasn't a raiding party, it was an invading army. The conditions for raiding had subsided with climate change, population stabilization, shifting political conditions, and more. Norse culture had been ravaged, but Norsemen had been made rulers of lands their forefathers had coveted. It was time to hang up the proverbial horned helmet. Next time on HI101, we'll be doing a survey of the world before and after the First World War. That episode will be up somewhere around January 1st. I'm afraid that needs to be approximate, as the holiday season has a way of holding up episodes a bit. And since the next episode won't be up until 2017, I'd like to wish you all happy holidays and all the best for the new year. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Oh,